Today we have another one of our exclusive Deep Trouble series. Deep Trouble is a series that you will hear exclusively on Adventure Rider Radio, which is stories about riders in peril. But it's more than that. Deep Trouble is about that underlying framework that really fuels adventure. The framework that is essentially the possibility that something could go wrong. Because if there was no risk, there would be no edge, no thrill, no excitement. And although we don't really want to experience something going wrong for ourselves, the fact that it's possible, even remotely, is what fuels adventure. And for some more than others, a rider could be thrilled by making it through a muddy section, up a rocky hill, through a river, knowing that the result could be getting stuck, breaking the bike or sucking water into the engine. No one wants that, but nothing beats the satisfaction you get from making it through a tough section. For another rider, it's crossing foreign borders, riding far from home, dealing with languages and customs they don't yet understand, and exploring new and far off places. We riders are a modern type of adventure, out there, exposed to the elements, rider and machine. Of course, we don't want to drop our bike in the river or get stuck in some remote place in another country or held up at a border, but it's kind of like walking out on a high cliff overlooking a vast valley. The thrill that you get just by approaching it, the sensation that the edge is near, not just the thrill of danger, but it's only when you get close to that edge that you're able to see the vista beyond. It's adventure, like riding a motorcycle. And with Deep Trouble, we'll explore captivating stories of riders who found themselves in deep trouble. We'll dissect these situations, shedding light on the challenges they face, the strategies they use, the the valuable lessons they learned. Most critically, we'll discuss how the situation could have turned out differently if some of the controlled aspects were changed. We'll talk about the possibilities and potential outcomes so that perhaps other riders can learn from their experiences and avoid making mistakes themselves and getting into deep trouble. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Sam Mannequin, Simon Payne, Jocelyn Snow, Charlie Borman, Simon Thomas, Grant Johnson, Jimmy Lewis, Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com Do you ever notice that when things go wrong, they tend to get worse after that? 
especially if you let it get to you. Now, this can happen with your day. So here, I'll give you an example. You're on your in your car, you're driving to work, everything's fine. And then suddenly you hit a bump that was never there before. You drive the road every day. And because the people the drive through didn't put the lid properly on your coffee, the lid pops off and coffee splashes out onto your shirt and onto your pants. And you get frustrated and you pull over quickly and you go to jump out and your shirt catches the door latch and tears. It's those type of things that it just seems to go from bad to worse. And then, of course, you get frustrated and it really gets to you. The catalyst is often so benign, it's, it's impossible to nail down just what started the landslide. Was it the, the drive-through that didn't put your, your lid on properly? Was it the bump in the road? Who knows what it was? And that may be the case with the story that you're about to hear about getting lost in the desert when there's only two roads, which sounds kind of difficult, right? This first story is from Chad Horton and Rose Padilla. Chad and Rose ride two up. Rose is the pillion. They call themselves Two Wheels, Three Sheets. And this story takes place in Bolivia. Okay. My name is Rose Padilla of Two Wheels, Three Sheets. I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I'm a professional moto hobo and super pillion. <laughs> My name is Chad Horton. I am from Los Angeles, California, also of Two Wheels, Three Sheets. And I guess I am the chief moto hobo. <laughs> Rose and Chad, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you, Jim. Mr. Martin, thank you for having us back. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Rose, I, I absolutely love that title. Super brilliant. So do you have a Super cape brilliant. with that or a costume or something? I, you know, could you send me one? I need one. <laughs> <laughs> that would be something, wouldn't it? I like it. The super brilliant. No no cape. No, no cape. You're no, not supposed to have a cape. That's true. That's probably a dangerous. That'd be one of those things that, you know, goes down the learning process in superheroes on motorcycles. But uh, yeah, I think we can right now eliminate the cape and think of something else for that. <laughs> yeah, that's all I need is her cape getting stuck in the chain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we're talking about deep trouble here. You have a story about getting lost in Bolivia. Now, who wants to set that up? All right. Well, I'll, I'll set the scene and then uh, Rose can jump in and... Uh, call me a liar. <laughs> so this is, uh, and actually, Jim, this is the first time we're telling this story because this is fairly recent. This, uh, this just took place in May of this year. So uh. what about, I guess, six or seven months ago or so. Mm -hmm. um, so we started in Iuni, Bolivia. And a lot of people probably know Iuni because of the salt flats. Sure. The, the Salerno de Uni. It's one of the most famous overlanding destinations in all of South America. Yeah, it's the one where everybody gets the photos of the reflective lake, you know, if, exactly. if there's water and, and the riding along in the, in the salt water and the, the pictures of somebody holding a person in their hand, all those sorts of things. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And if you've never been there, um, it's, it really is hard to comprehend how large an area this is. It's 10,000 square kilometers. Yeah, it's amazing. 4,000 square miles. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely enormous. Um, so, I mean, that most people know a uni because of the salt flats. Maybe also the train cemetery. That's probably what they're, they're, they're you know, also known for. People love to go to the train cemetery. It's just like a, a train yard with a bunch of old locomotives and old train cars that are all graffitied up. And everyone likes to go there and get their, their photographs for Instagram and everything. Um, 
but there is another there is another um, draw specifically for overlanders down there that people aren't as familiar with, and it's called Eduardo Avaroa Andean Fauna National Reserve. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> But the reserve is home to something called Rutas de los Lagunas, or the Lagunas Route. And this is kind of a storied destination in a lot of overland circles. Um, and a lot of people that run it will either describe it as the highlight of their South American trip or the low light of their South American trip. <laughs> it's, it's one of those. So w- what exactly is it? It's a giant, so it's essentially all it is, is an extremely remote, high altitude desert. Um, it sits in the, in the very southern section of Bolivia, sandwiched between Argentina and Chile. And it is a, it, it's a absolutely beautiful but stark, remote, high-altitude desert that sits between like 13,800 feet and 18,000 feet, 4,200 meters to 5,400 meters. Um, you can go online. You can try to do research to um, plan a route. And planning a route is, you know, there's really only a couple of roads in this entire reserve. And it's it's a large area of land. It's like 7,200 square kilometers. So it's almost like 3,000 square miles. And there's only two or three roads that cross the land. And a lot of people that do end up running the Lagunas route will run it between Oyuni, Bolivia and San Pedro de Atacama in Chile. And it, one of the reasons that people consider it a highlight is because it is one of the most remote places that you can get in South America. When you get out there, there's really nothing there. Um, there's no gas. Uh, there's, there, there are very few stops in the way of supplies or lodging. It is very remote and it is very, very beautiful. And the roads are extremely rough. And a lot of people that describe it as the low light just, you know, for the exact same reasons. The road's very rough. It's very remote. <laughs> <laughs> so depending on what happens. But but so this is a this is a traverse. This this isn't a, an in and out. This is a traverse that it would be then. For most people, it is a traverse, yes. Okay. But you may recall from our last conversation, Jim, that we are persona non grata in Chile. We cannot cross the border into Chile with the motorcycle. Right. And so for us the best we could hope was to pack as much gas as possible. If you are running it straight from Oyuni to San Pedro de Atacama, it's 460 kilometers. Okay, so let's just, uh, just Chad, so for those who don't know, why can't you get your bike across the border? Like very quickly, just because. (laughs) We we had to smuggle our motorcycle out of Chile due to some, uh, due to some legal issues. (laughs) Right, so so if you go back in, what they're going to do is they're going to run your VIN and they're going to say, hey, there's a problem with this bike. It's not so much you guys. It's not us. Yeah, we can, we can uh, cross freely, but it is the motorcycle. And yeah, chances are that if we tried to cross the border to Chile, they would confiscate the motorcycle. Right. Okay. Um, so that's obviously something we don't want to risk. Sure. Um, so in our case, the best we could hope for was to pack as much gas as possible, 
get as far south as we could, uh, and then just turn around and run back up to a uni. So that was the plan. <laughs> and, and is this where everything changes? <laughs> so she said that was the plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, eventually that's, that's what we ended up doing. We just hit a few speed bumps along the way. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, for, for anybody that hasn't been to the city of a uni and all due deference to the, the, the wonderful people of a uni, it's a bit of an apocalyptic, apocalyptic hellhole. It is. Did you ever see the, uh, the, the Mad Max with Charlize Theron and that other guy? No, no, I didn't. Oh, okay. Well, I'm pretty sure that's where they filmed it. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> a uni is a very unique city. And oddly enough, I mean, outside of, I think, maybe Bereloche in, in Argentina and maybe Cusco in Peru, uh, I saw the most tourists in a uni, which is just very unlikely. I mean, everything huh. from moto travelers to backpackers to people, you know, fresh off the bus with like their rolling suitcase. I mean, it's just a uni was crawling with tourists. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there are a lot of tour companies that primarily serve to take people out to the salt flats. Mm. Um, it's turned into just like a huge global destination, like a bucket list item for a lot of people. I see. And second on the list outside of the salt flats will be the Lagunas route. And one of the major criticisms that people have online, you know, when they're describing this as one of the lowlights of their trip is despite the fact that there's only a couple of roads that traverse this reserve, it's extremely easy to get lost, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How can you get lost when there's only two roads? Yeah, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, you would expect absolutely. it to be easy. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you go this way, you go that way, in and out, you're done. Yeah. Bob's your uncle. But, you know, nonetheless, we tried to do our due diligence as best we could. Um, you know, we tried to look for maps of the reserve in town, which you think with all the tour companies and everything, you'd be able to, you know, find a map easy. Mm -hmm. There were no maps. There were, there were no maps. There was very little information available to anybody outside of the people that were running these tour companies. Um, and we had gone online, we had read some trip reports. I had even downloaded a few like rudimentary maps that people had put together for their trip report, um, which is essentially like the modern version of a, a map drawn on the back of a napkin. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, aside from that, it's like we had, we had maps.me, we had Google maps. We just had like the standard online maps. So, you know, we set off and we, we go to, I think it's San Cristobal, which is about 90 kilometers South of the uni. This is the last gas stop. This is the last hope for gas and very small town. And unfortunately the gas stations closed for lunch. So we get stuck there waiting for them to open up so we can fuel up. We get back on the road and South of San Cristobal, this yeah. is where the road starts to disintegrate. It goes from pavement to, to dirt. And most of South America, you'll find this no matter where you go in South America, the entire continent is plagued by constant road construction, constant delays, constant detours. And this was no exception. There were detours, there were signs, there were road closures. And, you know, what was just one road turned into like this maze of roads that kept crisscrossing each other and were on what appeared to be the main road, 
the only road for that matter. And we're watching our little blue dot on our maps.me. I use a, a Samsung phone for, for navigation. And we watch this little blue dot float further and further away from the route. <laughs> until, until eventually like it's just a blue dot in the middle of a blank screen. We're, we're nowhere near anything that appears to be a road. You mentioned you've got lots of fuel. We've got we've we've got about a five hundred kilometer range. Okay, so you got a five hundred five hundred kilometer range. You're yeah. you load up on your like. There's two of you. You're two up. There, you and Rose mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with Correct. all your gear, your camping gear, etc. All of our camping gear. Uh, we've got a bit of food, not a whole lot, because we should be able to find there are refugios that have food supposedly uh, inside the reserve. I but see. yeah, now, we're com- we're completely loaded. Now, Rose, when you're in the back, can you see the GPS? Uh, occasionally I do look over and I see, uh, well, what Chad is describing, which is basically, we are the blue dot in the middle of a sea of nothing. Yeah. No, so no, you guys I are do. running comms, right? No. Oh, you're not running comms. Okay. So no, you, we've, we've chosen not to. Okay. So <laughs> do you have any indication how far you're getting away or do you just all of a sudden glimpse over every now and then, and then start to think, Hmm, what's going on? Yeah. I mean, you know, normally Chad's very good at um, just sort of, uh, he has a a very good sense of direction. And so I I have zero sense of direction. So I've basically learned to rely on him um, to get us in and out of everywhere. And even when he has no map, because he's a, he's a map guy, he's a paper map guy. Mm -hmm. um, It's, it's never really you know, been an issue and until it is. <laughs> right. It's, it's ironic that you're saying that, you know, he's, he's got a great sense of direction and the story is about getting lost, but okay, Chad, take it away. <laughs> not my fault, Jim, not my fault. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, so, but, but I mean, that's really the amazing thing is because we're on the only road. It, we didn't miss a fork in the road. You know, there wasn't an intersection. This is, you know, we're on the only road heading south. Yeah. But our little blue dot continues to float further and further away. So we finally make it to the, like the, the, not the park headquarters, but it's like the, the visitor center. And I'm using that term very loosely here. <laughs> visitor uh, center, quote the, unquote. Yeah. The, the ranger station. It's the entry. It's the entrance to the reserve. Um, so we finally make it there. We get inside and they've got like a giant laminated wall or a laminated map, excuse me, on the wall of the reserve. Uh, you know, and we, we register, we pay our entrance fee and everything. So I go in there and I'm, I'm looking at the map. I'm trying to figure, I'm looking for that. You are here, you know, red dot on this giant map they have on the wall and I can't find it. So I asked the woman working there that the ranger, I was like, you know, excuse me. So where are we on the map? And she tells us, oh, this road isn't on the map. And I'm thinking, there's only two roads. You know, it's like, how, how is this road? There's maybe like three ranger stations in the entire reserve. It's like, how is this road, which is like the main road into the reserve, and this ranger station not on a map that's only got two roads? I don't understand. And, and what? how so, often do you ever get to a visitor center that has a map on the wall that doesn't cover the area that you're standing in? That's just bizarre. <laughs> Well, and I asked her too, I was like, so, so where are we? And she just kind of like vaguely pointed, like, you know, her finger. She's like, hey, you know, around here somewhere. Like, All right. <laughs> that doesn't give me a whole lot of information. So she's like, so, but where are you trying to go? And we had, we had, before we set off, we had identified like a, a refugio. 
um, like a shelter where they've got beds and they have food and everything. And that, that was our destination for the day. Um, you know, and we, I, I did this refugio and, and she tells us, no, no, don't go there. That's dangerous. And I didn't know what she meant. It's like, what do you mean, like a dangerous neighborhood? There's no neighborhoods out here. I was like, what do you mean, danger? You know, dangerous yeah. roads. I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily sure what she meant. But she said, don't worry, because just up the road, thirty kilometers, there's another refugio. Stay there. It's a better place to stay. So, you know, at this point, you know, we had to wait on the gas. Uh, we probably got a late start leaving town. We'd stopped a few times to figure out where we were and, you know, take pictures and chase flamingos as you do. So at this point, it was already getting kind of, kind of late in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I figured, okay, another 30 kilometers, no big deal. Cause the roads up until this point had been in decent shape. So 30 kilometers, no problem. As soon as we get back on the bike and cross the barricade into the reserve, the roads instantly turn to crap. Oh. Um, you know, what was a nice wide graded hard pack road turns into like deep rutted sand washboard. And so now, you know, all of a sudden we're not making great progress, but you know, we push on, we push on and next thing, you know, it's been 30 kilometers. It's been 40 kilometers, oh. still nothing, no refugio and it's getting darker. And Rose, so at this point, what are you thinking? Um, I'm not quite desperate yet. <laughs> <laughs> but but you're concerned, right? Like this isn't Well, it just wasn't making sense for what we expected to come across is is what it was. Mm-hmm. So we get so eventually, you know, 30, 40 kilometers down, we finally get to this this intersection intersection of two major roads the roads that we're on uh, which is kind of trending southwest and another road coming in from the northeast and there's a sign at the intersection but the names on the sign have no relevance to anything on any map they mean nothing <laughs> you know it's you know this is that way and that's that way and it's just like i'm looking at the maps and these these names mean absolutely nothing to us ostensibly I, these are there's some sort of town or something I don't, no idea, no idea. They're just words on a sign that, that have no relevance whatsoever. Right. I mean, it might as well have been Greek. So, you know, and I'm looking at the map trying to figure out, and like I said, the maps that we have are, are very lacking and the online maps, you know, we're so far off whatever the route is supposed to be. The online maps at this point are just worthless. Right. So I do know that we need to continue in a Southwest direction. We're trying to get to something called Laguna, Colorado. And it's to the Southwest. So, you know, naturally we take the road to the Southwest. So we're continuing on and it continues to get darker and darker. And we finally end up um, stumbling across a structure. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was, it, it was a house or if it was, you know, maybe an old refugio, but it was completely abandoned, totally boarded up. There was nothing there. And, you know, I could see a light. Because it was getting to the point now where it was dark enough where people were turning lights and I could see a light in the distance. Now, we're at altitude mm-hmm. in the middle of this barren desert-like landscape and there are no points of reference. So we see a light 
in the distance, but we don't know if that's 10 kilometers away or if it's 50 kilometers away. Oh, you just right. can't tell. Yeah. You, you know, there's a light out there somewhere, but it seems to be in the general direction that we're heading. So this could be a city far off or it could be a house close by. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost impossible. It's a light. That's yeah. all we know. There's a light out there somewhere. So at this point, it's, it's pretty much dark. It's pretty much blackout. And I'm kind of in, I guess I could say a foul mood. Um, <laughs> just because things aren't necessarily going according to plan at this point. Yeah. So, so we're continuing down this road that has pretty much disintegrated into like just this rough track. And we're descending down the side of a, an embankment, like a hill, towards what I assume is going to be the shores of Laguna, Colorado. Now, let me, let me just ask here. Let me just interrupt here. Now, what you're saying it's, it's rough riding. How are, mm-hmm. What sort of percentage um, of your skill level are you riding at at this point? Oh, uh, 20%. Okay, so you can handle it because I know you're an experienced rider. You can handle this no problem at all. The biggest issue I'm having at this point, Jim, honestly, is I, at this point, I was running stock lights on my motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And I never really saw any reason to put, you know, aftermarket lights on the bike because as you know, we don't ride at night. Of course. <laughs> never happens. Not usually. <laughs> Until you find yourself lost in the middle of, you know, Bolivia. Riding at night. You know, riding at night, you know. <laughs> right. so that was the biggest problem at this point I was having was I was having a hard time seeing. Uh. Um, you know, and it, it's, just, you know, cause it's a stoplight on an Africa twin, which isn't a great light to begin with, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, we weren't riding fast. We were riding a decent clip, probably like, you know, 50 kilometers an hour or mm-hmm. so, you know, that's what the train would, al- the terrain would allow. Yeah. And, and so that was really my biggest problem was I just couldn't see all that great. Um, and I didn't know where I was going. Um, so we're coming down this kind of this rough track probably, like I said, doing about 50 kilometers an hour or so. And the track bottoms out. And the next thing you know, as soon as we bottom out, we are now in knee-deep sand. Mm. And there was a left-hand corner with a large berm on the other side. And that's kind of what, as I was coming down, that's what I was aiming for. I was just going to turn and kind of bank off the berm as you do. But the next thing you know, now we're in this deep sand and you know, now my options are limited because you obviously can't crank the bike without augering in the front. You know, you can't grab the front brake without pitching over, Sure. you know? So, so now it's like, I've, you know, I've got to contend with the fact that, you know, I've lost a lot of my traction and my steering ability. But you're pretty so, comfortable in sand though. Uh, well, the biggest, the, 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 the two problems I had with this, I mean, a, a fully loaded Africa twin two up is never, a picnic in sand. Yeah. It's now, I mean, because generally speaking, right when we're in sand, what do we do? We lean back, we throttle up, we, we float the front wheel. That's a lot harder when you're, when you're loaded like this. Um, so it's a lot of bike to try to handle, especially in super deep sand. Mm. So um, when you hit this sand, then the, the stress level somewhat increases. Well, I didn't even really have a chance to be stressed, to be honest with you, because as soon as we hit the sand, I was turning to the left, and as soon as we hit the sand, I tried to lean it as hard as I could, but we started railing up on the berm, and then essentially, we just plowed into the berm. Um, Rose ends up flying up and over the berm, 
And I am now pinned under the bike. Oh, so how fast did you hit this? Oh, we were probably doing about 50 when we hit the track. Now oh. I'm assuming, I'm assuming that went 50 kilometers. Yeah. I'm assuming that once we hit the sand, obviously we scrubbed some speed there. Um, so I'd say by the time that we actually contacted the ground, we were maybe doing 35 kilometers an hour. Not all that fast. Yeah, fast enough to come to a, a stop like that. Yeah, fast enough to to get my my foot and my leg pinned under the bike, and I I realized immediately I had broken my foot. Oh, well, um, well yeah. let me uh, let me get Rose in here, Rose. Mm -hmm. So this happens. Do you have any indication this is going to happen just as as you're coming up to this? No, I mean you know these things happen quite suddenly. You know that's just the way it goes. Um, if it wasn't sudden it wouldn't have happened this way, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact that I got flung so far, maybe that's where I get my super pillion uh, nickname. <laughs> the flying part of it, right? <laughs> the flying part. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, fa the fact that I did get flung uh, that way, I know we did come to a sudden stop. And uh, yeah, he, he was uh, under the bike and I was over the bike. Now, were you okay when you landed? I was. I actually was. It wasn't... Um, you know, wasn't anything worse than we had, uh, you know, done before. We had, we've fallen many times. So, no, physically, I was fine. I could tell that Chad was, uh, you know, getting quite frustrated at that point. And he was, um, you know, we we weren't where we expected we would be at that time. Yeah. And then things in terms of the, the condition of the road was deteriorating. So these were, uh, you know... It, it wasn't, it wasn't a good situation. So when you pick yourself up and, and turn and look back at the bike and Chad, are you expecting that Chad's just going to jump up, get the bike out and, you know, curse at it and, and you guys are um, going to be off again? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he really was, I don't want to make him feel like bad about this, but no, he really was screaming. We're going to take a short break while I tell you about two things. There is more to the story. Stay with us. Renadian Adventures has been guiding adventure motorcyclists for 13 years. And before that, the owner, Rene Cormier, was on his own round-the-world trip. He even wrote a book about it called University of Gravel Roads. Today, Renadian Adventures trips are selected largely from the favorite places that Rene has from his round-the-world trip and the ones that he has real passion for. Now, these are places which he says feature big landscapes with not many people, and much of that is in Africa. Rene says that their Africa trips are really their most vacation-y of their guided tours with nice adventures throughout the day and lots of comfort at night. Riders who are new to inter international touring will find Africa a great starting destination, he says. And the trips are pillion friendly, meaning that not only are the roads okay for pillions, but also the itineraries are built so that there's activities and scenery for them as well. And as always in Africa, he has a chase truck follow the group in case the pillion needs a break from the bike, has a tummy bug. And every year, apparently, there's a spouse that attends the trip in the chase van. They want to see Victoria Falls or go on a safari, stay in luxury lodges, but they have zero interest in doing all that from the back of the bike. And that's okay. That's what the chase vehicle is also there for. Now, they use upscale boutique style accommodations. They ride predominantly BMW GS motorcycles. 
New bikes are available to rent, and a full-time Renadian crew is based in Cape Town to help with planning and logistics. Now, the routes can be all paved or with some sections of gravel. Renee also says Africa is safe to travel as they ride in rural areas and spend nights in these upmarket lodges. That sounds like an incredible adventure. Africa. So many riders talk about how incredible Africa is as a riding destination. Unforgettable adventures by day, recharge and ultimate comfort by night. Renadian.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's Renadian.com. Renadian derived from Renee's name and the fact he's Canadian. So Renadian, Renadian.com. The Atlas Throttle Lock is the most finely designed and machined throttle lock I've ever used or even seen for that matter. It's really a work of art, but more importantly to me is how it works. It's a slim, sort of easy to install metal mechanism. It has two buttons on it, one button for engage, the other one for disengage. And basically it holds your throttle in whatever position your throttle's in when you press the engage button. That way you relax your hand, your wrist, your arm, and uh, not only avoid cramping, but just the soreness. And, and, and you will actually really notice it when you use it, just how relaxed your arm gets by relaxing that tight grip. Now, even though it's called a throttle lock, it doesn't really lock anything because you can just smoothly roll on some more throttle or simply twist off throttle as needed. And it holds the new position. Now, the disengage button is just as easy. You just slide your thumb over and press on it. And these things have such a tactile feel they feel, not only they they feel right, they just, when you press them, you go, yeah, that's how it ought to feel. But not only that, it makes it so that you know exactly what you're doing without having to look at them. That's really important. I really believe that the Atlas Throttle Lock will be one of your prized additions to any bike. And it's easy to swap from one bike to another, which is another great thing about it. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, atlasthrottlelock.com. Was I don't want to make him feel like bad about this, but no, he really was screaming. Um, so what I expected really just wasn't uh, the case. He he doesn't really scream like that for no reason. I knew he was hurt. Oh, in pain, uh, he's was, screaming in pain. Oh, I see. Mm, yeah, mm. he was actually he was in pain and he was under. So it wasn't something like, hey, let's just you know do what we normally do. Let's just uh, <laughs> muscle this back up. And no, it wasn't like that. So you run back. Yeah, I run back and basically, as Chad said, it's very, very dark. There's you don't have the benefit of the city lights to sort of like, you know, get get some light in the situation. So what I saw was basically the dust was in the air and the only illumination was that of the stock lights. And so it was kind of a scene, um, sort of one of those where time stands still. I don't know if you can relate mm -hmm. to that. Yeah, definitely. And and, the, and just when you get in a very stressful situation, everything just seems to slow down and focus heavily on what it is that you're dealing yeah, with. Yeah, it, it's like I got tunnel vision. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was uh, screaming like a beaten child. It was because I mean, immediately it was like I felt my foot snap. So not only is it broken, but you've got the weight of the bike on it. Like, I mean, that's kind of the most disgusting thing to think about is a broken oh, yeah. bone then being wrenched by the weight of a, a motorcycle on it. Oh, and then trying to, you know, you know, your initial reaction is trying to yank your leg out from under it. And obviously, oh, yeah. you know, that didn't help the situation because it, I was quite pinned. Um, oh. And yeah, that just that, you know, I had the, the pain shooting up my leg. And yeah, it, uh, it kind of sucked. Um, it certainly wasn't ideal. 
But yeah. in, and I mean, the, the ironic thing is Jim, like less than 10 minutes before I crashed, I turned around to Rose. I, I was, like I said, I was in a bit of a foul mood. I turned around to Rose and I said, you know, I'm just going to pull over and pitch the tent right here, mm-hmm. you know, which, which wouldn't have been ideal because, you know, it gets really, it's, you know, sub freezing at night. Yeah. Um, and you know, we've got the gear for that. We certainly would have survived, but it wouldn't have been comfortable. But, you know, that's probably in retrospect what I should have done. I should have just pulled over and pitched the tent because I was having a hard time seeing. I didn't know where we were. But unfortunately, I decided to push on. And yeah, I ended up pinned under the bike with a busted foot. So what happens next? So um, after a bit of screaming and cursing on my part, we finally got the bike back up. And Rose was saying to me at that point, she's like, let's just pitch the tent here. Well, the thing is, I know... I can at least uh, set up camp and I don't need him to help me with that. So I I thought, well, how is it that that we can just get him off of his feet? Um, And he was not having it. No, I mean, I realize, you know, after a crash like this, you've got the adrenaline flowing and everything. Mm -hmm. I did not want to take my boot off because I didn't know if I'd be able to get my boot back on. And I honestly didn't even know if I'd be able to ride the next day. Um, I really didn't know what shape my foot was in at this point. So I wanted to, because like I said, it's a very cold, very remote, very desolate location. The last thing I wanted to do was risk setting up camp right there and not being able to get Rose out of there. Yeah. Mm. But you did suspect it was broken though. Oh yeah. I knew it was broken. I knew knew it was was, broken. Yeah. 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 I just didn't know, you know, I didn't take it off. And I was a, I was a medic for 10 years. Um, and I used to work oh, in I search see. and rescue. And so mm-hmm. I've got, uh, I've got a, a background in emergency medicine. Um, but I realized that, you know, at this point now the, the boot is acting like a walking cast, you know, and once you take that off, it's, it could swell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I might not be able to get it back on. I, you know, once the adrenaline wears off, I not, might not be able to ride. And so I was bound and determined to make it to that light, no matter where it was. Mm-hmm. So. Anybody that has done the Lagunas route um, is aware that the area around Laguna, Colorado, and that's where we were at this moment, is the, the worst part of the entire route. It is just nothing but thick, deep sand, and there isn't even a road that crosses it. But it, ju- it just ends up degrading into all of these crisscrossing tracks as people, you know, as people try to make their way across the shore of the lake. Um, So there's no longer a road. It's just this gnarly deep sand. And now I'm hurt and I'm riding tentative, which is like the worst thing you can do, especially in sand is to ride tentative because you know how that goes. Yeah, definitely. And so you've got the bike up, you've gotten back on the bike, you've got Rose on the back and you're, you're going to go again. Yeah. Yeah. We are riding and I don't really have a recollection Rose recalls that we actually ended up going down a few times after that. Yeah, we did. Um, you know, Chad's writing changed completely after we crashed. He was writing really messy. You know, it was, he was making mistakes that he doesn't normally make. Uh, he was stressed. He was hurt. You know, it's almost like his muscles had filled with lactic acid and it was like we were riding in molasses. I mean, it was sand, so it might as well have been. Um, but 
it it wasn't he wasn't himself and i mm-hmm. think uh that's why i was uh pressing for you know look let's just stop it's not going to get you know any better this this was bad enough but it could have been and it might be worse as we keep going so are you discussing this with him are you sort of hollering to him hey we should we should stop and you're sort of having this conversation as you as you're riding no 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 um she would i would have been able to hear her over my own screens <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was pretty much screaming the entire the, the entire next hour. Yeah, yeah. One of the times that we had um, gone down, and this was after he broke his foot. Uh, I'm trying to hold the bike up so that he can put his leg over the bike, um, and in doing so, he caught his foot in our sheepskin uh, seat cover, and. It just, it was like the camel, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. He just lost it. And he tries to rip this seat cover off while I'm trying to hold the bike up. Um, and he's just yanking at this thing. It's buckled underneath the seat. It's got these like very secure attachment points. It's not budging, but he keeps <laughs> yanking at this thing. Um, and I finally, you know, yell at him and say, this is not the time. I can't hold the bike up anymore. Stop. But needless to say, that sheepskin cover lives in Bolivia now. <laughs> so it's, he didn't listen. It's, or, he, he, no, it's, no. it's organic waste. It's not really littering. It's, it, was, it, was, it was all natural. <laughs> yeah, I well, no. What had happened was um, when we had crashed originally, one of the attachment points on our seat cover had torn. And so now the seat cover was kind of like flopping around. And oh, I see. yeah, I, th- I think what happened was we had, you know, gone off in the sand. You know what it's like in sand? Often you just like drop the bike. It's a tip over. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think we had tipped over and I tried to throw my bad foot over the bike and I ended up getting it like caught in the sheepskin cover. Oh, and uh, yeah, I decided that that was going to be the final resting place of the sheepskin cover. So, <laughs> so this, this is your right foot. Yeah, my right foot. So you can still shift okay, but um, rear brake is rear brake is probably out of the question. Yeah, yeah, but well, no, actually, you know, like I said, the 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 boot acts like a walking cast, and so it was just aside from being in a lot of pain. I mean, I, you know, it was difficult standing on the pegs, you know, putting weight on the foot, uh, but braking wasn't a problem or anything like that. So oh, I see. Hmm. But I think yeah, we we struggled, and I still don't you know, remember how far it was, um, to finally get to the Fuyo, but it took us well over an hour after the accident to fight through the sand, to make it to the refugio. And I mean, we were, we were actually very lucky because there are no utilities out here. Everybody runs off of generators and they didn't have anyone staying there. And so generally speaking, these places will run their generators for a couple hours at night and then they'll turn them off to save the fuel. Um, but they apparently saw us out there and realized that something's wrong. They actually at one point had come out with like a spotlight and they were like flashing their spotlight at us oh. because they realized that nobody should be out here. And they probably saw like the, the light constantly going skyward, and, <laughs> you know, they probably saw my silhouette like ripping at my seat cover out there. <laughs> Um, 
So they were nice enough to leave the light on for us because if they hadn't, you know, if that light had gone on, you know, it's like now our beacon's gone, you know, now I've got no idea where we're going, but they left the light on for us and, and we pulled up and they, they clearly realized that I was hurt. Um, they were nice enough to make us food. And, um, yeah, I mean, we were just really lucky that, that they were there, but it was, uh, yeah, it was a very, uh, unfortunate situation. They probably just heard your screams, Chad. <laughs> Could have been. Could have been. And wonder, what is that out there? <laughs> injured Wanaka. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but so is, is that your salvation? I mean, what do you do with your broken foot in a remote place? And, and you're saying you just, that was the refugio that you were going to, that you were supposed to be going to. Honestly, I don't even know. I don't know if that was the same place or oh, not. It was a place, it was a place with the light on. I don't yeah, even think it had a name. It didn't um, matter at that point. No, yeah, how lucky. Like, that's just amazing mm-hmm. that, that they're, 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 you know, he happened to point in that direction, that they had their light on, that they recognized that you were in distress and kept the light on. Just incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, very lucky. Very fortunate. And, and then they were very nice. Like I said, it was, it was quite late by the time we got in, but they still made food for us, everything and made yeah. tea for me. And, and, and they were quite old too. I felt really bad for them. Yeah. Oh. And they started the, the fire in the potbelly stove so mm-hmm. we could warm up next to the fire because it was already very, very cold out by the yeah. time we got there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I had no idea how long we were going to be there, like whether or not I'd be able to ride the next day. But luckily, I was able to get the boot back on. And I mean, it was, you know, I was in considerable pain, um, but I was still able to ride. Yeah. And once he took the boot off, it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of ugly. It was um, different colors. It was really swollen and yeah, it didn't look good. So you managed to ride to the hospital? Hospital? Hospital. (laughs) It's no hospital. So goes to the hospital. We we took him to the vet. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you do? I put him down. Yes, you put me down. (laughs) Had me euthanized. Uh, no, I didn't do anything. I mean, all they're going to do for a broken foot is put me in a walking cast and I can't ride like that. So no, I mean, I just like, I didn't do anything. It was my, it was my fourth and fifth metatarsal, you know, and you could, you could literally feel the fractures and I still have a bit of deformation where the, uh, where the fractures healed, but no, I didn't do anything. Um, just continue. I, Honestly, Jim, I haven't gone to the doctor for a broken bone since I think I was in junior high school. Well, okay. So, but, but I mean, if it was a compound fracture or anything, of course you'd have to go, correct? Oh yeah, sure. Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if it had been like a, a femur or like a tibia or something like that. Yeah, obviously. Sure. Um, okay. Yeah. But I mean, this is just, you know, ribs, hands, feet. I mean, it, it, there's only so much you can do for it anyway. Um, so this is good that you have the, the medical background because you, I mean, there's in your mind, there's no question. That's what you're, that that's what you're going to do unless there's complications. Correct. Correct. And I mean, oddly enough, I mean, down the road, I ended up, my right foot ended up, uh, becoming partially paralyzed quite a few months later. I don't think that was a result of the accident, but, uh, I've got no idea what caused that. Oh. So, um, yeah, luckily that came and went, but I was having an issue with my perineal nerve and uh, I could not lift up my right foot for about two months. Wow. So that could be something to do with, I mean, you'd figure not that far afterwards, but that could be like a pinched nerve and, and when you have a break. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah generally it, it is associated with trauma, although I hadn't had any recent trauma. This was like maybe f- three or four months after the accident. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it yeah. happened to co- coincide with a stomach bug I got. So the doctor thought I, I actually did go to the hospital for that one because I needed for the stomach bug. I needed um, they prescribed me Cipro for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went and saw another doctor in Ecuador about the foot drop, about the nerve damage. And he thought it might have been an autoimmune issue that had to do with the uh, parasite, uh-huh. uh, the stomach bug. But luckily, a couple months later, it went away and I got full use of my right foot again. So, but again, I don't know. I can't imagine that had anything to do with the accident, but I don't know for sure. So, well, well, and of course, it's deep trouble. So we want to go back and, and look at this and uh, and, and <laughs> chat and Rose. I mean, it's great that yes. both of you are being so open about this and, and telling the story because I mean, these things are, um, you know, well, you're being very frank with what happened. And um, I think it's always easy to sit back and judge these things from an armchair perspective mm-hmm. and uh, and make um, assumptions on what should have been done, et cetera. But let's look at that. Let's go back and sort of analyze that. The one question sure. I had about when you were saying about the no maps, Chad, and you said, the, or the maps that are around are very poor. Is that a, a tourist thing? Like, are they, do they do that on purpose or something like that to make it so that they only have the, you know, the, the sort of the inside information or is it just for lack of interest in map making? That's a really good question that I've pondered myself, Jim. And I think it might be the, the, uh, the prior um, reason being that while we were touring, so we didn't see any other, I guess you'd call us independent travelers uh, on the Lagunas route. Mm-mm. Everybody else that was down there was in one of these organized tour groups. Uh. And they basically, they all load up in a van or some four-wheel drives or whatever they have. Uh, generally, it's a caravan with like three or four vehicles. And they go to these different refugios. You know, they spend a night here, they spend a night there. And what ends up happening is like th- these, these tour groups are the lifeblood of these refugios that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the only things that keep them in business. But these locations are so remote that these refugios, they don't have supplies. And so the tour groups bring the food with them. And then they have the people that work at the refugios prepare the food for the groups. Uh-huh. So we soon discovered that being independent travelers, we were the redheaded stepchildren. <laughs> and there were times where the only way we could eat was we had to wait for a tour group to finish eating and then we would get their leftovers. Yeah, we got the scraps. <laughs> We'd get their scraps. We were happy to have them. <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine the advertisement for the tour group is probably just a like skull and bones in the desert with sand blowing <laughs> over them saying, take one of our tours or end up like Bob. Yeah, or, or, or die. Yeah. yeah. And the play Chad and Rose. <laughs> or Chad and um, Rose, exactly, the and two the of you. And the play Chad and Rose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, I think, I think it, well, it's either the fact that the tour groups, yeah, they don't want the information out there because they want you to be reliant upon their tours. But that wouldn't explain why the park themselves didn't even have the road on the park map. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that you know, roads or highways down in these parts of the world aren't permanent fixtures. Um, you know, I think that they're temporary and they're constantly rerouting, reconstructing, rebuilding. And I think in the case of like why our little blue dot ended up wandering off in the middle of nowhere and why people complain about getting lost all the time is that there are no updated maps of the area. 
like even maps.me, Google Maps that apparently use satellite, things like that, they weren't even up to date. Mm. So I think it's just a matter in this part of the world, and we've come across it before where you're following a route, you know, on Google Map, and then all of a sudden it's like you're off the route and you're someplace where a road shouldn't exist, yet you're on a road. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's a matter of the fact that the map makers or these companies, the GPS, they don't, they can't keep up with the ever-changing location of the road. Now, you, we, we did say that when we were talking about uh, when you left there. So when you left the map, the, the person you talked to that said uh, that your place to stay was going to be, well, I think you said 30 kilometers away. Mm-hmm. You had lots of fuel. You said it was getting starting to get dark. That all seems sensible even in hindsight, doesn't it, to head off? In, in hindsight, absolutely. Because again, 30 kilometers, we would have, we hit that 30 kilometer destination before it was dark right you know so i mean it was just it was just a matter of going on the information that was available at the time i mean in retrospect what i probably should have done was you know at the moment that i realized okay it is now dark i am having a hard time seeing you know when i turn around and told rose i've got half a mind to pull over and pitch the tent right here that's exactly what i should have done and also, I think I'm I'm more conservative than Chad is. And when we passed that abandoned building, whatever it was, I wanted to actually take shelter there. So that would have been, you know, long before we ran into trouble. But it's like that would have been, you know, a, a somewhat proper base. We could have gotten some sleep and then started out fresh. And I wanted to ask about this because I think this is really, you know, that's the turning point, isn't it? Where you could have avoided all of this. But what I'm curious about is that at this point, what's the perceived risk of carrying on? Does it really seem that um, that the perceived risk is that high to carry on or, or is that the problem? I think Chad uh, downplayed and maybe he just doesn't remember because he was injured. Um, he downplayed the the point of the accident all the way to the point of where we where we actually reached the light um it it's it's difficult to to picture unless unless you're there uh there there was no easy way to get there so when you're hurt and you're as i said riding a bit messy um it's like we were falling again and again, and it was like the light was getting no closer. It, was, it wasn't uh-huh. that there was like a, a very short promise of some sort of like, oh, you know, as long as we just keep going, you know, we're, it, I, I was telling Chad as we were going, you know, you got this, we're almost there, we're almost there, because we had already committed to getting there. So, you know, he didn't want to set up camp. That, that was, you know, a foregone conclusion. So we just had to get there, but he really, he, yeah, I think he does have some memory loss there. It was not easy to get there. And it wasn't just around, you know, a couple more hills or a couple more stretches that were difficult to get through. But back at that abandoned building that you found that was boarded up and the time, mm-hmm. Chad, when you turned around and, and said to Rose, you know, uh, maybe we should just set up or I feel like just setting up the, the tent or, or whatever it was exactly you said. At that time, that the perceived risk, did it seem like it could be as serious as it was? 
No, because at that time we were still on, you know, even though the road had degraded and it was, you know, a bit rough going, it was still a hard pack. Um, you know, had I realized what lie ahead in terms of the sand, there's, there's no way I would have tried to tackle that at night. Um, especially without being able to see. And I think ultimately that's probably, um, the reason that we crashed in the first place is because I couldn't really look far enough ahead with the light, especially at the angle that we were coming in at to, to really read the terrain in front of me. Um, and we got pitched into this deep sand and it just took me off guard. Um, you know, and I was going, I was going too fast for the, for the conditions. And yeah, I I wasn't able to make the turn and we just ended up plowing right into the berm. So had you had proper lighting, that may have been a different outcome. You could have either stopped or changed your approach or whatever it would have taken to get you through that. I have GV lights on the bike now and they are (laughs) wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And they look cool. (laughs) So, okay. So um, now in hindsight, do you have new rules or anything you guys have developed for this sort of situation? Yeah, Jim, don't ride at night. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just don't, just don't do it. Just don't do it. You know, we did that episode on Raw where we talked about riding at night. And I remember being kind of blindsided because everybody, everybody admitted that they've ridden at night because of just these type of situations. Like, it's like you have this hard, fast rule. We never ride at mm-hmm. night, but inevitably you're going to end up riding at night at some point. So if you prepare as you did, not having, not having lights for riding uh, at night because you don't do it, that's when you're really stuck, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's unavoidable. I mean, you're going to get stuck out. Everybody has, you know, Mm -hmm. nobody plans on it, but it always ends up happening, you know, at one point or another. And yeah, it really does help to be prepared, uh, when that happens. And yeah, I should have had the lights on there. And actually, um, now that I have the lights, I mean, the lights are great, not just for seeing, but for being seen during the day. Um, I keep them on during the day when I'm riding just so, you know, oncoming traffic has a better chance of seeing me. Had we had lights, Jim, we probably would not have run into this situation in the first place because I was unable to read the terrain. Uh, and we came into that sandy section way too fast and I just essentially lost control of the bike. Mm -hmm. Um, so if we had had lights for the eventuality, because everyone gets stuck out after dark. You never intend, but it always happens. Um, so we should have been prepared for that eventuality, and I wasn't. So now with your your new light setup that you have that illuminates everything for you know many, many miles in front of you, an incredible vision, will this push you more the next time if you run into the situation, you'll say, well, I've got lights, so I will ride at night? Uh, I, you know what? It's situational. You never know. Because when you get caught out, sometimes it's just, you know, that light's just over the next hill, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes you just never really know how far away that light really is. So, I mean, you know, there are no hard and fast rules, as you know. Um, it's always situational. So, Rose, now for yes. you, do you think that you would do anything different if this happened, something similar happened again, as far as the way you're communicating what you think and how would that affect things? Yeah, you know, so this was a real true field test for me. Um, You think you know how you're going to handle every situation should it come up. Um, You know, do I have an effective approach, you know, at managing a crisis situation? Um, I'm limited as to, you know, what I really bring to the table. Um, It's not like I can ride Chad out of the situation. Mm -hmm. So basically, I want to be... 
Yeah, an asset and not become another liability. Because uh, it's just, you know, panicking or doing anything else in that situation, it's really not going to help. It's not going to get us any closer to, you know, uh, warmth or shelter. Um, no, I, I really wouldn't do anything differently. You know, I tried to have somewhat of an internal uh, backtracking map as we were kind of going along. And I would try to pick up on any little thing that I could look back at as a formation to sort of like get my bearings if I had to walk back. Mm-hmm. Um, and really everything was so convoluted at that time, there would be no way that I could have done that. And I certainly knew no one would be coming uh, by, no one would be driving by uh, at any time. So um, I, I really, you know, I really just had to be sort of the cheerleader to get us, you know, from where we were, hopefully to get to that light that, like I said, was so far off. Mm-hmm. Chad, you know, thinking back to, to your decision to get onto the bike and ride it and then having gone down, I know you're, you, you don't remembering everything. Obviously you're in pain, you're, you're stressed beyond belief. Would you change that? No, no, I'd probably still do the same thing just because, you know, all's well that ends well. I mean, at that point I was already injured. Um, it certainly didn't aggravate the injury. Uh, and like I said, I didn't know what condition I was going to be in the next morning, whether or not I'd be able to walk, whether or not I'd be able to ride the bike. And it, it is very, you know, remote and the conditions are very harsh. And I did not want to leave Rose stranded in a tent on the side of the road you know, where we might not, you know, there might not be rescue. We've got a beacon. Um, we've got one of the in-reach minis, um, but it really has to be a life or death situation for me to push that SOS button. Okay. And I was going Um, to ask you about that, but what happened, what would have happened if they'd shut the light off though? That would have been, that would have made things a lot more difficult because basically there was no road. We were just, we were heading across the sand. Um, so there wasn't a road that we could follow and be like, oh, it must be at the end of this road. It was just like, we're in the middle of nowhere heading towards this beacon. So had they shut the light off, yeah, that that would have yeah. changed things dramatically. Things would have gotten desperate. And I can't help but think of, you know, how things happen in an emergency like this. If you get sloppy, if you don't do the typical stop, regroup, you know, see what you've got for for resources and make a plan rather than sort of thrashing out, which in this obviously worked out perfectly for you, exactly as you described but that time to stop in an emergency like that and sort of gather yourself and give yourself time to sort of collect yourself and, and get some clear thinking going on. Cause I can't help but think you could have went off and got even more loss. I don't know. Is there a more loss? Like, can you get lost and then more loss? I don't think so, but, but you could have stayed lost and got to a more remote spot. Yeah. And he had another foot to break as well. <laughs> That's right. There's, there's more to break. Rose could have been injured. The bike could have been damaged or something like that. That's what I was thinking along those lines. Mm. Yeah, I mean, my, I think my line of thinking at that point was just, I was worried about the adrenaline dump. I was just trying to ride the adrenaline high as long as I could, because my fear was if I do stop to assess my injuries, if I do stop to, to tend to my wounds, I might not be able to get up and get going again. I didn't want to take the boot off because I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to get it back on. 
You know, and this is interesting, this part of the conversation, because this is where things are seen differently depending on what your worldly experience is, your life Mm -hmm. experience. In Mm -hmm. other words, you have such a background, Chad, you're saying you've been, you worked as a medic for 10 years. That's a lot of background. You've got the riding experience. You've got two people. You've got Rose there who's uninjured and able to help out with things. And she's working it through. It's, um... It's, it's impossible to see it from your perspective completely. You know, you can only look in with your own life experience and say, well, that doesn't feel right. Or, or maybe I would have mm-hmm. done something differently or I would have done the exact same thing. Really, a lot of what we do, I guess, is what I'm saying here. It has to do with your personal resources and what you think you can do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having been involved with search and rescue for a long time, I mean, there is a huge reliance on... Um, you know, again, I was scuba diver, caver, and we used to say only cavers can rescue cavers. And in these communities, there is a huge emphasis on self-rescue. Um, like I said, I'm only going to push that SOS button if it is a true life and death situation. But if I can crawl, claw my way out under my own power, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, yeah, that has a lot to do, I think, with just my, my background in search and rescue and my medical training and everything. And it's also notable that, you know, with your resourcefulness that you have, that you still are carrying around the inReach, which I'm, gl- I'm so pleased every time I hear somebody say that, you know, that it is a last resort emergency thing, not something you press when you get a flat tire or you've run out of food or something like that. And, you know, you're not going to try anything yourself as far as to get out. It is a last resort, but you're carrying one, even though you are very resourceful and there's two of you. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, the worst case scenario, you know, and we've got a, uh, we've got a uh, insurance plan for evacuation, you know, should such a scenario arise, but yeah, it's absolutely, it's just, it is the, it is the last choice, but anything I can do, like I said, if I'm still conscious, if I'm still mobile, I I think that has a lot to do with my mindset too, because Rose knows how Mm. stubborn I am. I mean, it's just, I don't go to the hospital unless like I'm unconscious and someone takes me there. Mm-hmm. Um, no, you know, I think really, we all know how stubborn you are, Chad, just from this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, no, you kind of, you, you, you touch on an important point and I don't really think it's emphasized enough these days in our community, like in our subgenre, And that is, you know, uh, self-reliance. And, you know, I often will, you know, I run into people I've been riding with people who have gotten flat tires and have no idea how to change it uh, and, you know, don't have the tools and wouldn't carry the tools because they wouldn't know how to use them if they had them anyway. And it's, it's really astonishing to me to run into people that have zero mechanical knowledge, no tools, no even like basic first aid training. Um, and I just kind of wonder, it's like, what, what, are you, what are you doing here? But you know, what, what are you going to do if things do go pear-shaped? It's like, are you just going to be completely reliant? Or are you going to push the SOS button if you get a flat tire or just, so yeah, I don't know. I don't think there's enough emphasis on that in our, I, I stuttered to call this a sport, in our pastime. Um, we seem to have kind of been, you know, give people a free pass on that. And I think that's a mistake. Some people may find it too difficult to, or for whatever reason, to gain the knowledge of, of mechanical knowledge, repair knowledge, those sorts of things. But basic first aid, anyone can take. And those courses mm-hmm. are, are all over the place. To not do basic first aid, really, I, I think you're doing yourself a, a disservice, in my opinion. But there is something to be said, and I think what you're pointing to there as well, is about taking responsibility 
for yourself. So in other words, if you're not going to learn how to do a flat tire, to fix a flat tire, or do mechanical repairs of any sort, should you be out crossing a desert? You know, should you be doing those type of things? Should you be pushing yourself just with the knowledge that you have your your beacon on you where you can press the the button? And I think many of us would argue that, no, you, you shouldn't be doing that because you haven't taken responsibility for yourself, at least not enough. And I know this is this can be argued to the nth degree and, and there's certainly, you know, a, a huge uh, a gray area, I guess, in this as far as how you argue the, the whole thing of risk and acceptable risk, et cetera. But there is something to be said about doing your due diligence, taking responsibility for the areas that you're going to ride in. Yeah, or at least if you're going to put yourself in a situation like we found ourselves in, because we kind of went off a bit half-cocked. We didn't have, uh, you know, the best maps. We didn't have, like, the best information. At least be ready to, to at least mitigate the damages should you get yourself into a situation like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, have the tools that you're going to need have the medical knowledge and the, 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 you know, the, the medical equipment that you're going to need in order to, you know, save yourself or extract yourself from a situation like that. And increasingly I see more and more people in these far flung places that have none of the above. Um, and yeah, it just, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. And I, I think we as a community need to start kind of like keeping each other a little more honest in that regard. Mm. Um, because you, you're not always going to be able to rely on somebody else to get you out of a jam. Um, you know, there isn't always like a, a Gomeria around the corner where they're going to be able to fix your flat tire for you. You know, so in, in that case, what do you do? You're going to rely on somebody to come by in a truck and hopefully throw your motorcycle in the back of a truck. And I mean, we, you know, worst case scenario, you can find yourself in that situation. But again, you want to you be as prepared as possible to prevent that from happening. Chad? Rose, thank you very much. It's a great story, and and there's lots to learn there for us. Uh, thank you, Jim. Thank you Appreciate so much, you having Jim. us back on the show. And uh, yeah, don't do what we do. <laughs> I think that's the lesson here. <laughs> Chad Horton and Rose Padilla from Two Wheels, Three Sheets. Their social is all Two Wheels, Three Sheets. It'd be well worth your while to follow their adventures. We've got some photos from this deep trouble experience they're talking about in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Now, I've got two things I want to tell you about just as our break here. And then after that, we have another story from a couple who also find themselves lost in Bolivia. Stay with us. Hexinnovate.com is the inventor of the GS911. Now, in case you're not aware, that's the diagnostic tool that has changed the lives of many BMW riders. The GS911 allows you to see inside the computer system that runs BMW motorcycles. It can check fault codes and help diagnose problems in the system in a way that only a dealership could before. It's truly revolutionary. It can save you the expense not only of a dealership visit, but also the GS911 gives you some peace of mind while you're riding your bike, well, anywhere, because if something goes wrong with your BMW, instead of it being left as a dead bike at the side of the road of the trail, you pull out your GS911 out of your pocket and begin checking systems. It's a game changer for BMW riders and probably should be a staple for every BMW rider toolkit. So that's the GS911. Now, Hex Innovate 
also invented the EasyCan Accessory Manager. Now, the EasyCan is a device that plugs into well, all kinds of motor, uh, modern motorcycles into their CAN bus system, not just BMWs, Harleys, Ducatis, KTMs, Husqvarna's, Triumph, Yamaha, Honda. The EasyCan allows you to add accessories without cutting a bunch of wires and potentially voiding your warranty and or messing up the system. It allows you to use your existing controls to turn accessories on or off. It's like an amazingly powerful unit. If you add an accessory to your bike and you have a CAN bus system, then you should look at the EasyCan. Even the OEMs like the EasyCan, the, the manufacturers do, because it's a way for riders to add electrical accessories without creating issues in the motorcycle's electrical system. Now, the person behind Hex Innovate, who makes the GS911 and the EasyCan, is an avid motorcyclist just like you and I. And I think that's a huge part of what makes companies like Hex Innovate so great is that, that passion behind the company itself. The website is hexinnovate.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Hexinnovate.com. IMS Products is owned by Scott Wright. Now, Scott is not only a serious adventure rider, he is a former Baja 1000 winner. So that gives you an idea of where the passion behind IMS and their full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs comes from. I want to walk you through some of these series, three series of pegs right now. The ADV series, they're the largest ones. The ADV series foot peg is designed specifically for adventure riding, a larger platform, both wider and longer. It gives you the benefits of that wider contact patch on your boot that reduces stress on your feet, your legs, and your hips, and it gives you a lot of control over the bike. The bike really responds to your inputs, and it's great for a heavy bike in particular. The next one is the Rally Pegs. The IMS Products Rally Pegs are a more aggressive, tall tooth design, a wider platform than your stock foot peg would be. It uh, better distributes the rider's weight, and it helps with lean angle, and it greatly improves the overall handling and control of the motorcycle. So whether you're a casual racer, a desert racer, or an aggressive adventure motorcycle rider, the IMS Rally Foot Peg will give you maximum performance and grip. Core Enduro. Now the Core Enduro Foot Peg, this is the peg that I have on my bike. I love this peg. It takes your adventure to the next level. You go longer, harder, and faster with this wider base and aggressive uh, tooth design on it. These are a smaller foot peg than the ADV series, but they're very aggressive and they really plant your feet no matter what's around the next corner. So if you're an aggressive rider and you ride tight technical things, this may be the peg for you. So there you have it. The ADV series for fire roads, highways, long distance, sort of wide platforms. The rally series, an aggressive wide foot pegs that'll take your ride to the next level. And then the core enduro pegs for the more technical, aggressive rider right through to racing, I guess. IMS products, they're made in the USA. They're warranted for life. You can't go wrong. IMSproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. While Spencer Conway and Kathy Nell are no strangers to adversity, in fact, I, I sometimes think Spencer enjoys it in a, sort of a sick way, but in, enjoy it or not, it's what they do, and they don't complain about it afterwards either. They just chalk it up to part of their story. Spencer and Kathy are attempting to circumnavigate every continent on Earth, and while doing so, they film the adventure for television. Spencer, set this up. Where is this, and, and um, what are we looking at? 
Hi, Jim. Yes, um, we're talking about the Sala de Uyuni in Bolivia, and it's an incredible place. And I think I've talked about it with you before, and I'm sure other bikers have, because it's an extremely iconic location to get to on a motorcycle. Yeah, just talk about that. Ex- explain exactly what it, what it is. Yeah, for sure. Well, basically, it's a prehistoric lake, um, about 60,000 years old, which has dried up um, and has become a salt pan. So, I mean, everyone's totally aware about Bonneville, where they do all the speed racing and Mm -hmm. the Bonneville Salt Flats. Just to give you some idea, it is 100 times bigger than Bonneville. It is 12,000 square kilometers. So, I mean, it is absolutely huge. So, this prehistoric lake has has turned into this salt pan, um, and it's about a meter thick, but it is one of the flattest places in the whole world. It doesn't change in altitude by more than a meter. So it's one of the most incredible places to ride. Unfortunately, underneath um, the salt, of course, there's still a lake there, which is incredibly beautiful. But the problem with it is that it's very, very rich in lithium, um, which they need, obviously, for batteries. Uh And uh, now, I think I discussed this with you before, Jim, you know, they've got these electric cars now. So the need for lithium has increased multiple times so on a negative side there are uh, yeah they're digging up this this incredibly yeah, beautiful out. salt pan and i just mentioned the reason that it would be so flat is because it was liquid so the liquid lays flat and then as it's, it becomes more saline and eventually solidifies that's why it's so flat that's why it's the flattest place there's nothing else that can flatten something like that. That's exactly the science behind it. That's right. You've described it perfectly. And the only thing that that changes that is that they've got two volcanoes that popped up through the lake. So now we've got this strange situation where we've got this totally flat 12,000 square kilometer salt with these two little, what they call islands sticking out of them, which are actually the peak of these volcanoes. And this is where you find, um, you'll find people. But apart from that, there's nobody. And this is so vast, you can easily get lost. Oh, 100%, 100%. There is, there is only two routes that people take. I mean, if you imagine looking at it from the air and it's the shape of a cake, uh, you cut it in four sections. Those are basically the two roads from east to west and north to south. And uh, they're not roads, Jim. They're just, you can see where cars have, you know, you can see the tire prints on, on, the, uh, on the salt. Um, but... Yeah, uh, 90% of it, there is absolutely nobody around. And um, that was part of what caused our problem. So why are you out there and, and talk about what you're riding and how you're riding? Yeah, we're on a, we were on a Yamaha XT660Z Tenere and we're two up, obviously, because Kathy's on the back filming. Um, so yeah, we decided to go there. I, I've discussed this many times. There's two very, very stupid things that people do, traditions that they do on the salt flats. One is to try and ride for one minute with your eyes closed, which is ludicrous. Mm -hmm. And the other one is to ride naked, which is ludicrous too. Um, I mean, I'm not going to be all school teachery about it, but if you come off on sand, on uh, salt when you're naked, it's exactly like hitting very, very coarse concrete. It is totally unforgiving and totally solid. And um, also uh, naked, not a good idea either because uh, it's extremely reflective. Okay, it's 3,600 meters, but uh, it's white. So it's totally reflected. So if you're naked, your uh, nether regions will get very burnt. You're going to get tanned very quickly. Well, burnt yeah, very, very quickly. In the wrong places. Yeah, I have a hot right. dog. Yeah. So wh- what are you doing here as far as before the crash? What are you doing? 
Sure. Well, we wanted to head up to the island because we knew that the, the, the island being the top of the volcano, the tip of the volcano, we knew that there was a cave there that we could camp in. So that was going to be, and we were filming, of course, um, mm-hmm. for our, our TV programs, but we knew that there were rock rabbits there. We knew that there are um, vicunas in that area. There are flamingos, three different types of beautiful flamingos. Um, so, you know, an absolutely stunning otherworldly place to stay. So, yeah, we found this cave and we camped in it for the night, built ourselves a fire, had some dinner and looked out on this view. It sounds amazing. It is. It's just one of the best locations that you can go to in the world as a biker. And I would go wow. back there a hundred times. Uh, the, the, the problem is that um, you do get a lot of drunk people there, uh, unfortunately, oh. Jim. Yes. And they have a lot of accidents. Oh, they're just driving across the flats. Yeah, well, there's two things. There's the tourists and they get so excited, you know, they're on holiday and I understand it. Um, but the other side to it is actually the tour guides. There are quite a lot of dodgy tour guides who who load their trucks full, um, drink too much and uh, roll the trucks. And in fact, when Kathy and I were there, there was an accident, wasn't there, Kathy? Yeah, with, um, I think three people were killed. It was something you have to watch out for as a rider. Absolutely. If you're Which on is crazy north- thinking it's so wide open and, and everything. Absolutely. But people do stick to those two main roads, east, west, north, south. Uh, So that's where there's traffic. But as soon as you go two minutes off of there, there's nothing, nobody. And that was our plan. What happened to you guys? Um, Well, I said to Kathy, we need to get away from humans so that we can film it, uh, you know, just with no, nothing there, just so it just looks absolutely stunning. So she was like, okay. So then uh, we did. We went off and headed out where there was absolutely nobody. And then stupidly, I said to Kathy, look, I want to do a sort of kind of like a high speed ride past. So if you if you jump off, film me from a great distance and I'll ride past as quick as I can. And then we'll do it the other direction going away. And then we should have a nice little montage shot. So she was like, no, Spencer, it's stupid. Don't drive fast because, you know, she's sensible and I'm stupid which is correct. Uh, and she said, it won't even notice it on camera so much. I quit you going. So obviously I listened and I ended up going 160 kilometers an hour, <laughs> like a total lunatic, but it looked great on camera. Okay, hang on. So Kathy, Kathy, can you talk about this? Yes. Well, Spencer's very good with all the rules and regulations, but he's very good at breaking them himself. <laughs> <laughs> one of one of the main rules when you go to the salon is not to leave the main drag, the main road going through. Because, you know, even though it's very flat and you can see things from a great distance, um, the heat waves actually alter everything. So you don't really, you can't actually see someone a few kilometers away from you, you know. So people uh. do get lost out there and it's quite tragic, actually. It's It's quite a common thing. Um, so of course we went off track and, uh, another thing that you shouldn't do on the cellar is speed because you know, the salt crystals are so sharp that they will go into your tires. You know, some of them don't break when you ride over them. And I actually think this may have been what had happened when Spencer was speeding around because straight after that. Um, well, actually before that, I just want to mention, we had a tire put, a new tire put onto our motorbike from a guy that was sitting on the side of the road. 
And both of us were not quite sure whether he had done a good job or not, but we didn't bother to check that. And that was another thing, you know, in retrospect. Oh, yeah. That we spoke about. But Is this a front soon, or a back? The back tire. I see. So as soon as um, fin- Spencer finished speeding around the place and <laughs> doing the things that he did, we jumped on the bike to ride off um, and it just, the tire just burst. Absolutely. It just burst, came right off the rim. Mm. So part yeah. of this could be the heat build up from him screaming along so fast as well. Oh, I think there were so many different reasons for it happening, but it's just one of those things, you know, it could have happened anyway. Um, the inner yeah. tube had, the inner tube was actually twisted, um, which we found afterwards. Um, oh. and there was a very, very long, long tear in it. I mean, we were going about 70 kilometers an hour when the tire burst. Oh, wow. Um, but Spencer managed to keep it up. Um, you know, until we came to a stop. I'm sure he wants to tell you about this one. Yeah, it was just so funny because this is another example of Kathy. I was so proud of myself um, because it was like 70, 80 Ks an hour. And and like Kathy said, it came off and it's unheard of. Never heard of it before. Uh, normally, Kathy and I changed the tires ourselves. So I'm just going to say that it was another error by us, not uh. checking the work that someone else has done and kind of deserve it in a way. But as we were sliding around and me thinking, okay, this is it, broken legs, broken arms, broken hearts, we're done for here. Uh, and I was breaking away thinking, I'm doing quite well. I'm slowing down, I'm slowing down. I got a slap on the back of my helmet and it was Kathy going, are we going to stop? <laughs> 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 just brought me down to earth. I, I just, I just laughed. Because she's thinking you're just not getting on the brakes or the front brake enough? No, she, yeah, she just thought, why are you taking so long to stop? But there was <laughs> but just no control because the tire, back tire was wobbling all over the place. It, right, no, well, while really you're funny. congratulating yourself on how well you're doing or controlling it and slowing it down, she's thinking you're just not doing it fast enough. <laughs> exactly, bringing right. the man down to earth. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, after that, was, I mean, it was just fantastic because obviously we'd, um, the tire had burst and we were stuck where there was nobody absolutely nobody. So that's when I love about the fact that we travel together is we, we just spring into action together as a team and it works really well. Because al- although it's not that hot in there, as I said to you earlier, the reflectiveness is intense and you get sunburned as much as you do when you go skiing, even if it's minus five degrees, you know, you end up with that right. burnt face. So, so, so here you guys are in, in sort of the middle of nowhere, really. You're off the beaten track. No one is expected to come and drive or ride by you for any reason. Uh, as Kathy said, that the heat waves coming off of the reflective surface makes it difficult to see somebody in the distance. It changes the, your perspective. You're kind of on your own here, and you've got a, a blown back tire. So what do you guys do? What happens? Okay. What do you feel? Talk about what you feel at this point when the bike is finally stopped. You, you, you didn't go down. You're not injured. How do sure. you feel? Okay. Uh, the, the, one of the worst things was that one of our water bottles flew off and burst. So that was a big, big, big nuisance. Oh, so we right. didn't have a lot of water, which was a real, real nuisance. The second thing was that the, the tear on the tire was about eight inches long. So um, we had to repair that. Kathy um, sewed it up. And like, you know, like you sew clothes up, she sewed it up and, and then put a patch over the top of it and it worked. And yeah, now, is this something you've done before? Did, did yeah, you, like, we've as done soon it as a you few look, times. Oh, you've done it a few times. So as soon as you look at this problem, you kind of know, or Kathy knows what needs to be done. She's, she's thinking, okay, I'm going to stitch this together. 
Yeah, absolutely. We've been through it before. We've actually repaired uh, uh, tires like that before. And it, it works. It works very well. You just stitch it up like a torn shirt. You put a little patch over that and then you put a major patch over the second one. And it works perfectly. Kathy, can you just talk about doing this repair, or what it takes and how are you making the holes and what are you stitching it with? Um, I've got, I've got, um, I use, sorry, um, fishing line. Fishing, fishing line, line okay. is, is to me the best thing, um, that I use. I carry that around because it's very hard to break. W- what sort of weight of fishing line? I don't really know the weight. I don't know. I mean, I'll go in and I'll buy a, a, a reel and that's it. That's what I'll keep on me. Right. But it's got to be a fairly heavy fishing yes. line. Yeah. Yes. It's very strong. You can't snap it. Yeah, but the monofilament line, not metal line. No, no. Right, okay. Not metal. I'm, I'm not very big on fishing. I don't actually know the, the different, okay. the, the gauges or the names or, yeah. um, I just, you know, I, I use that and I use it for tents or anything. I'll, I'll um, body bags and um, whatever we use, body bags. That's not the right Body word. bags? That's a story you know, for another time. But Jim, <laughs> honestly, I'll, I'll just tell you quickly. We were, we were talking about it before um, when we were in Brazil. We had our sausage bag, our army sausage bag. And every time we walked into one of the hotels in Brazil, we used to ask the receptionist if they would mind keeping it downstairs in their um, extra room because it, our mother was in it. <laughs> we, we had a body of our mother in. And, you know, not one of them blinked, not one of them argued or even asked a question. They just said yes. So we started doing that on purpose <laughs> just to see. <laughs> That's brilliant, right. isn't it? That is great. <laughs> yeah, we started off as a joke because the guy said, yeah, we'll keep it for you. What's in there? And I just went, my mother. <laughs> and then Kathy loved it so much. We did it at every hotel and everyone just goes, okay, no problem. <laughs> but yeah, no, Kathy, does, I mean, she repairs with nylon. She's just got this heavy duty needle and uh, yeah, it helps and it works. But the problem was that once that repair had been done, we got the compressor going and the compressor decided to pack up. So we ended up with, we didn't have a tire. Mm. Wow, Um, that is quite a dilemma. Again, the remote and and what do you do? Well, you know, as soon as we we, um, broke down, I put up the tent for shelter because that's the first thing you need to do with the sun. And then I sat there and watched Spencer do all the hard work trying to fix the tire. Because I thought, well, you know, the only time, the only thing you can do in a desert um, if you are really stuck is you wait for the evening and then you walk because the sun is way too hot Mm -hmm. and you'll dehydrate. So that was my line of thinking. Um, He sweated away and tried to fix the tire, but it didn't work. So we rode out of there on the rim. On the rim? Yes. um, We went at about 30 kilometers or 20 kilometers an hour swaying all over the place on the rim until eventually we came to the next island. So is this the rim like with the tire on there or is this just a bare rim? Well, it's got the tire. (laughs) We tried to put the tire back on. So the tire was loose and, you know, that's basically the bare rim, really. It's just flop, but the tire's flopping around there. Yeah, yeah. Because if it gets caught, I think, you know, between the, the, the swing arm and the rim... Yeah. You know, I mean, could, we were, we were really, really worried because if we, if we were, if we didn't manage to do that, we had no water left. We had 
absolutely nothing. We were way off the the track where we were supposed to be. And, you know, we did see a bus in the distance, but they would never have seen us. Um, yeah, we were in a really bad situation. And what was that like riding out on the, on the rim? Uh, it was, it was quite freaky, but, uh, it got us there. Um, but it was, you're talking about five, six hours and Kathy said we were going 10, 20 Ks and now we weren't, we were going five. We were basically walking the bike. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, but just, just kept it going. You were that far, you were five or six hours away. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. We were right on the very, very, very outskirts and the island is bang in the center and the town oh. is directly on the other side. And you I know mean, where you're going, a- like you've, you've got a direction or you're following your track? No, we're just following the track. Well, we followed directly south until we came to the track where we could see where other cars and then we just turned. Um, but I mean, you're talking 120 kilometers uh, um, across wow. you know, in either direction. So mm-hmm. Uh, going at that speed, yeah, hours and hours and hours. But uh, we did eventually get there and um, we garnered some help from from the Bolivians and they were unbelievable because we left everything in, absolutely everything in the, in the cellar. We took everything off. We took the panniers off, the cameras off, the sleeping bag off, the tent off, everything we owned and we left it right in the middle of the cellar. All your worldly possessions left where it happened so that you guys can get out on a lighter bike. But now you got to get back and get your yeah, stuff. Absolutely. And this is where it's, I, once again, hats off to Kathy. Um, she said, okay, look, I'll wait here. You guys go off and look for the stuff. And I went off in a truck with uh, three Bolivian tourist guides. And between them, they'd worked there for 40 years, Jim. 40 years. Mm-hmm. So they knew it like the back of their hand. Uh, two days we went out, we didn't find anything at all. But how, then, so what, could like is there when you ride on on the salt flat? Are you not leaving tracks? Could you not just go right down to where you had your tracks? And we and couldn't find on? our tracks. It's so vast that as soon people. as you turn slightly, yeah, no, there's your tracks will disappear. Um, mm. You know, uh, the actual tracks do not disappear themselves because uh, you know it's such a stable environment. Um, you know, uh, but to find it. The, the one, the exact one that's yours um, is almost impossible. So yeah, it was really tough. And it was a place where no one went. So mm-hmm. if you don't initially find your first track, you're never going to find the route. So I just went kind of by ear the way I thought it was. And Kathy kept very, very quiet. By way that you thought, that's like holding your hands up and say, it feels <laughs> like it's this way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I did. I thought, I think it's this way. I think it's this way. But the guys were wonderful. But then uh, on the third day, um, Kathy, you say what happened then. Well, actually, it wasn't the third day, Jim. It was from the first day, but they didn't listen to me. Is <laughs> <laughs> <So>, right? <laughs> so after but, they went out and, and explored some and realized they don't have a clue. Yes. They, then you say what? I said, it's there by that mountain over there in the distance. <laughs> I told them to drive towards... There was one particular mountain that was standing out and I had noticed it when we had broken down. So we were sort of, in, you know, directly in front of the mountain. I said, if you drive towards that mountain, you will find the stuff. And they did, yes. And they found it. Yes, of course. <laughs> so in hindsight, if you were, if you were, let's say, reading this story in a book mm-hmm. and, you know, the, now you have your, your questionnaire afterwards, 
what would you have done to find it or to mark your spot or to make sure that you're able to find your gear? The same way, I think. It, because that's the first thing I've ever been told is that if you, you know, if there's no roads or anything, you have to look at landmarks around you mm-hmm. to know where you are. But normal people use GPSs and then they well, mark, gonna, and they mark uh, the point and then they go back to it an hour later. But we're, we're idiots in the sense that we, in the sense that we um, just make life more difficult. As you know, we don't carry a GPS. We only have a paper map from 1985. <laughs> I have to say, Spencer, this is when a GPS would have been very, very handy, obviously, for you. It could have saved you a lot of grief. Not only that, you could have tracked where your, your route to get out. You know, without yes. any sort of zigzagging, without going and finding the road and going, I understand it adds to the the adventure of things. Absolutely. You have, you have a cell phone. I mean, even your cell phone will have a GPS in it. No, we didn't have a cell phone. Oh, you didn't have a cell phone either. <laughs> no, we didn't. Um, but the, listen, Jim, if it, you can look at it as a mistake, but I can look at it as we met three wonderful Bolivian guys and Kathy was able to prove herself right again. So, you know, it's two bonuses, isn't it? It makes my day. Sure. But you were out of water. So you had what, maybe say three days with no water. And then they would just found you guys laying on the salt flats, <laughs> your bones oh, some oh, years if, down if the we, road. If we, yeah, no, if we'd come off and we'd injured ourselves, we would definitely be dead, brown bread by now, as yeah. they say in England, dead. Yeah. So, so did that change anything? Do you, do, do you have a, a, no, I know you don't have a GPS, but do you have a, a spot or a Zolio? or an in-reach. I recognize that name. Someone gave us a spot tracker. I think it's that orange and black thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's um, right. No, we left it in England. But <laughs> um, yeah, so it could have been a mistake. Um, could have died from it. Um, we, we do have now a mobile phone with something called Maps Me. Have you heard of that one? Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. It's good enough for us. And what it does is it helps us, you know, sometimes you can't find camping. Sometimes you have to go into a town and buy, you know, get a, a rundown motel or something. Mm-hmm. And that is when I've got to admit it helps. Um, right. You can just quickly look up, you know, world's worst hotel and uh, you'll find it. So Maps Me works for us. Uh, happy with that. So we've upgraded. Right. But, it, but in hindsight, like looking back when we're talking about what you would have learned from something like this, most people I think would say they learned they should have a spot or a GPS or something like that because it's yes. your, it's, it's the last resort, right? That's what I picture it as. I know some people will press it if they get a flat tire, which is ridiculous. And, and certainly I think an abuse of it, but it's a last resort. It's like, like, cause if you did get injured, if, if you know, and, and you're stuck there, the both of you, you could press this button and chances are you would be found and very likely rescued. Does that not seem like something you should have? Um, yes. Uh, it would be, it, it is something that we did think of in certain places, but not really in most places. Um, I always found that there was somebody around or something around close, close by. Um, you know, even if you waited two hours um, the cellar was a little bit different. I do, I do think that, but then I have to just say that, you know, none of the great adventurers had GPS and I didn't in, in my youth. I'm, I'm 50 now. <laughs> we never had GPS in those days. Yeah, I, no, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I know because we talk about this all the time, Elizabeth and I, you know, about how when we were younger and if you went out somewhere, you were just out. You know, it wasn't like, you know, somebody could text you and say they haven't answered for 10 minutes. What happened to them? 
But I mean, this is sort of insurance. I mean, you guys are pushing the envelopes. I mean, you know, early explorers didn't have motorcycles either, and they couldn't go the distances in such short periods of time that you can. I mean, to head off in a, in a in a direction like that. I mean, if you were walking the the Salar, you might even prepare yourself differently as, yeah, as no, you headed out. No, you know? Jim. Let 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 me interject and and be totally adult about this. Um, it is the correct thing to do. We are we were stupid, and uh, I would recommend anyone that's listening to this program. Yes, have a, a spot tracker. Um, have your Google Maps. Have your GPS. Um. For safety reasons, because yeah, we could be dead in the cellar. Yeah, that's the teacher in you talking right now. But, yeah, uh, but it's yeah. also the same guy who will turn around, walk away, and then get on his motorcycle <laughs> ride as fast as he can across the the cellar, even knowing the consequences. Because he just talked about riding naked and going blind. I know, I know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? So I don't, <laughs> I don't practice what I preach. Right. Well, just, at least, at least you know what to do. Yeah. No, I know what to do. Just don't do it. Yeah, right. no, but 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 being deadly serious, I mean, of course, you've got to be well prepared. You've got to have your toolkits. You know, as I said, I had my compressor, but it failed. Um, you know, it, sometimes there's a string of things that that can go wrong that you you know you don't know about. So as long as you try your best to be pre- as best prepared as you can, uh, I th- as you said, I think Kathy and I sometimes do push the envelope out a little bit. We do make some silly decisions, but way, way less decisions now that she travels with me. Way less bad, poor decisions, Way less I guess. bad decisions, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so the thing is, you're probably the type that if you did get stuck out there and you were injured and you died, you wouldn't complain about it afterwards. No, I wouldn't complain, no. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and Kathy would, be, Kathy would be like, stop complaining while you're dying, yeah. please. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, uh, we work well together, Jim. I don't want people to think we're childish listening to this. We're not. We're fairly sensible. I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about very extraneous and, and, and very difficult situations which happen very, very, very infrequently. Mm-hmm. And uh, 90% of people who go to the Sala will be following along the main two routes and they will be found within a couple of hours. So there's no mm-hmm. chance of death. So it was just our choice to go out and, you know, just get some beautiful filming out of it. And and many times dangers, uh, almost all times, dangers of perspective because a, a tightrope walker will walk along a beam that's 50 feet off the ground or whatever and it's really no problem. It's well within their range. And I think that's what we're talking about here. You guys are very experienced travelers. You have a very wide latitude of, uh, of comfort and skills that, that take yeah. you through these areas to navigate places that maybe the rest of us would be well served to just take the safety equipment and do it that way. No, sure. Oh, no, that's very kind of you to say that, Jim. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's just experience, isn't it? I mean, Kathy and I have ridden the entire length of the Amazon directly east to west. And with confidence, because I mean, Kathy's very, very good with bushcraft and um, setting up camps and um, keeping things calm. And, and she's good with mechanics now because we've worked together. I mean, changing steering columns, all sorts of stuff. So it's not just the tires and the brakes and the, you know, the, the general things, the coolant, etc. We can do a lot more than that. So I don't want people to think that we're just going out there gung-ho and being mm-hmm. stupid. We're absolutely not. And, and no one should really, you know. Um, if you're not prepared, things can go wrong. And as I said right at the start of the interview, and I readily admit it, two or three of the things, difficult situations we've got into have been because of bad decisions by me. You know, and sometimes these things can backfire on you. But the experience is incredible. Mm. Yes. 
And, and Kathy, it's really strange because when I talk to you and Spencer, you both sound so sane. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've taught Spencer well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I think Spence and I, we, we both, we just really enjoy, you know, nature and traveling and meeting people and it is a frame of mind and that does change as you travel. You know, the longer you travel, um, the more your way of thinking changes and you adapt to lots of, you adapt much easier to a lot of situations, whether you get yourself into a pickle or not. Um, I think these things just, and, and another thing you learn when you're traveling like this and you're faced with situations is that how much you actually know, you know, like, um, people don't really question their knowledge on certain things until something happens. And then all of a sudden you realize, wow, I know what to do in this situation or, you know, there's so mm -hmm. many things out there that people will be surprised in how much they do know and how much they can handle. And, but it's, it's your, your mind frame of how much you prepare to take or how much risk you prepare to take. And, um, but I find that most people in the world are really, really good. And we've, we've been, we've had a really good rapport with everybody where we've been. So I can't really call places dangerous um, and you know, the danger thing can happen anyway. You know, you don't have to be on the road for something to happen. So that's another thing to think about, you know, instead of making yourself fear everything or mm -hmm. fear going somewhere because the danger is the same everywhere. So do you think that sometimes people are too fearful of just in, in general? Yes, yes. You know, I mean, but fear sometimes can be a good thing too, you know, it can be quite exciting and um, it can also, it heightens your senses and it can give you a different experience, which can be quite enjoyable. I'm not talking about being terrified. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm talking about, you know, just the general everyday fears and um, you do learn sometimes the things that you feared the most are also things that you you don't fear anymore after your experiences and where you're traveling. So I have a, I have a tattoo actually that says, uh, fear is temporary. Regret is forever. Fear is temporary. Regret is forever. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. So, you know, just get through, get through the times because, you know, um, if you don't do this, these things that you worry about, you might sit back in later life and go, Oh my God, I shouldn't have worried about that. I should have done it. Thank you very much, both of you. I appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having us. That was Kathy Nell and Spencer Conway. You can find out more about the couple at spencer-conway.com. We have that in the show notes on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Now, that concludes our episode of Deep Trouble for today. Stay tuned for more to come, though. We've got more of these coming up. If you have had an experience that you think would be good for Deep Trouble, drop by our website and send us your pitch, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, 
I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course, you, thank you very much for listening to the show and being a part of it that way. Um, If you have a story that you think would sound good on a Deep Trouble episode, definitely drop by our website and send us a note. We would love to hear it. Well, now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Wait, before you do that, I just want to remind you about our Raw show. Hey, we're coming up to the end of the year, too. This is this is December of 2023. We're, we're rounding the point here at the end of the year. And while you're thinking about your Christmas gift giving, may I be so bold as to ask you to drop by our website and click on support and consider supporting the show. It's built on a model of advertising listener support, and we could certainly use your support. It doesn't have to be a whole bunch, like for our Patreon account. It doesn't have to be a whole bunch. It can be a small amount each month that you won't even notice. I mean, you know, like a cup of coffee type thing, but it will make a big difference to us if we get a bunch of people doing it. So we would really appreciate it if you would consider it. Um, Anything $10 or more, by the way, if it's just a straight support thing or donation, that will get you some Adventure Rider radio stickers. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show, And speaking of Raw, Raw is the other show that we do. It comes out once a month on the 21st of every month. Be sure to find that anywhere you find your podcast. All the information about all the shows we do, every episode that we do is all on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Now, my name is Jim Martin. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. 